Welcome to Beyond This Point. I'm Gabriel Stromberg, Creative Director of Civilization. So, what is the point of Beyond This Point? The inspiration for this podcast really came about through our studio, being so inspired by those around us who we work, collaborate, and engage with. Artists, business owners, designers, and leaders of all types. We recognize the value in having access to these distinct perspectives and wanted to create a conversation that puts a spotlight on different ways of seeing, thinking, and making. In this episode of Beyond This Point, I continue my conversation with Amsterdam-based graphic designers Marika Stolk, Erwin Brinkers, and Danny Van Dan Dunnen that make up graphic design studio Experimental Jet Set. In Robin Kinross's book, Unjustified Texts, a collection of essays on design and typography, the author states, and I quote, Modernism is stranger than allowed by the present myth of gray restraint. Modernism is constantly perceived, especially within the current design landscape, as something elevated, refined, even elitist. It's easy to forget that modernism originally emerged as a radical, eclectic, and human-centered activist movement in response to a drastically changing world in the midst of global revolution. This original subversive energy is definitely captured in the work of experimental jet set, albeit reframed through a contemporary perspective. While their minimal type-centric approach is certainly in line with the tradition of revered modernist graphic designers like Wim Crowell and Joseph Mueller Brockman, their interpretation of this tradition is wholly unique, like nothing from the past or the present, and in the future, will certainly continue to inspire, inform, and delight for years to come. Picking up where we left off in our last episode, we dive into a conversation on how they landed the Whitney rebrand despite hanging up on them, the differences between European and American design influences, why they chose so many years ago to use only sans-serif typefaces, and what the visual language of the modernist is. And now, let's go beyond this point. There's a... um a term coined by the Japanese designer Kenyahara, and it's uh, information sculpture. And he uses it to refer specifically to book design, but it's all about in considering the fact that you're making something that exists in space. And I know, I know that's an aspect of this definition of a design object, but also um, your definition goes deeper and it's, it, it can be somewhat political and it goes into kind of a, a modernist theory. Do you, wanna, do you wanna talk a little bit about that? Without maybe sounding too uh too pretentious, because we are really theory uh, savages, we sometimes call it like that, in the sense that we never really, I mean, also we we went to an academy where there wasn't really a lot of attention for theoretical matters in general, and also we wouldn't wouldn't really describe ourselves as really uh, uh, theoretical thinkers. But sometimes you come across quotes or parts, or and, and that really resonates, and you think, oh, and then you sort of uh, relate it to your design work. And there's this one quote, actually by, by Karl Marx, and in that quote he is talking about uh, the idea that if humans are shaped by their environment, that's the whole idea of that's the whole idea of Marxism. This idea that you know we are ultimately shaped by our material surroundings. And he's saying that if, you, if, if people are shaped by their material environment, then this environment has to become human. So this, this, this again, is going back and forth between you, know, you being shaped by your environment, and in turn, you are shaping your environment. So that 
this whole idea of materialism comes comes from that basically. And again, the idea that in the end, um, if you if you know that objects are made by people, then you also know that they can be changed by people. I think that is all, always quite uh, in, important uh, to us. So that's also why we always try in our design work to somehow give these little clues to show people that uh, it is ultimately sort of a, like a designed work, whether it's uh, some kind of uh, way of folding it or the use of specific uh, white space. So, you know, we, we, we always want to show the almost like the, the emptiness of the page because we want to really show to people that in the end it is just ink printed on paper. And that is always important for that's not some kind of floating image or something or something that is uh, like God given, but in the end it's just a sort of material object. So it's just ink on paper, so you can just tear it apart if you want. It is it is makeable in a sense. And in the in the book, uh, that is also the way we treated our own work or the the, the pictures of our own work. Um, instead of trying to give a com uh, an, uh, an as complete uh, image of our work as possible. We focused on uh, details like folding or printing or papers, uh, paper uh, fibers or holes in paper. And we showed all the um, fragments of our work that we've made in the last uh, 18 or 20 years um, in almost a subconscious a uh, way. So there's a stream of this, these uh, uh, details um, uh, that go on for a couple of hundreds of pages. But what is also nice is this technical um, thing that uh, happened while we were producing the book is that the printer told us that we could not let the images bleed. Uh, normally we would have sort of not breaking this off because it's already cut here, so it's clear it's just a fragment. But he said that we could not have the image until the spine. In the, ce in the yeah. center of each spread, there's a white uh, band. Gutter, yeah. A white gutter. gutter. Um, I'm really trashing your book. Interrupting, interrupting the image, even if it's. Uh, um, and just because we wanted to have this bold book. Because of, the, because of the way of <laughs> binding, because of the way of binding that we wanted to use, uh, we couldn't let the full color print go all the way into the, into the spine. Because at that point, then the paper wouldn't absorb the glue anymore. It's a really technical story, but in short, the printer said, if you, if you want to do this kind of uh, binding and this kind of sort of uh, spread, it basically means that you have to have this sort of white uh, gutter down the middle. But now that we did it, we actually think, well, this, this only is sort of emphasizes what we always want to say, that you know, you, you're always confronted with that sort of white of the gutter so you, you always know that you're just sort of um, uh, looking at a printed page, so you don't get sort of allured into this sort of illusion of the, the full-color image, but you still there's this sort of nagging white glitch in the middle telling you, yeah, but actually you're just looking at a, at a page. But what is quite <laughs> annoying that, therefore, this is also not running to the end of the book. So yeah, the in, in the inside, it's quite nice, but on the outside, it's a bit... It's a bit messy, yeah. yeah. But, what can you do? <laughs> but it's a mass-produced item. That's what we like best about it. That it's, 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 not it's like a mass, but it's not messy-produced <laughs> item. It's a bit that messy, is, too. It's a <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
going back to this theme of modernism, uh, your participation in the modernist tradition, this is something that is repeated quite often in the book. One of my favorite um, ideas presented here is the fact that you grew up in the 70s um, with people like Wim Crowell as, as um, mentors or heroes, but you also grew up uh, seeing graffiti and uh, uh, subversive design, and you have kind of merged the two together and created this new thing, um, which still is in the modern tradition, the fact that it's very minimal and type-focused. So my question is, when did you, when did you realize the subversive potential in, in, in typography? Well, I want to make one note first, <laughs> that um, I don't think that Wim Krau was a mentor per se, or that he was, I think it was like a natural surrounding we were growing up in. It was not that we were conscious of this. Actually, all, I mean, he's like an older generation, he's now in his 80s, and I think um, maybe we were more, con we were more growing up in, in a, a generation uh, under him that was actually going very much against uh, his generation, but everything like from the school books uh, to the logos of the city we were growing up in that was all designed so it, it feels like an, like the landscape we grew up in so it 's quite natural it 's not something we were aware of at that time so he 's less of a an influence and more of a, or a subconscious influence. Exactly. Maybe. I think that is the word, yeah. I, I, I don't think we ever really studied. I mean, a, a lot of people think we sort of studied a lot of these books about grids or even all these fish people, but we never really did, did that. It's really something we sort of absorbed when we were young in our teenage years. And as, as Marika said, a lot of our surroundings at that time, uh, uh, a lot of items around us were designed by persons such as Crowell and and, and that whole group of people around Total Design. The, actually, the, the city where both Erwin and I were born, Rotterdam, that logo was designed by Wim Crowell, uh, stamps, school books, the, the atlases, the famous sort of boss atlases that you always had in school, these were designed by Crowell as well. So the whole visual uh, landscape we grew up in was pretty much shaped by that sort of language of, of late modernism. Uh, and indeed, in the 80s, when we were more, um, yeah, when we were somewhat older, we became quite interested more in this sort of uh, all these post-punk movements like Mod, Two Tone, Psychobilly, and, and these were things we were really interested in then. And I think our whole graphic design practice is, is a way to sort of always try to uh, uh, synthesize these two influences, which some people can see as quite a sort of conflicting, uh, uh, yeah, two conflicting forces or something. But in a in a way, they make sense to us because we went through these phases, uh, and we now have to try to sort of, uh, yeah, um, reconcile them in a way. So, I do think it's interesting though that um, you're definitely using the, uh, the the modernists' graphic language. But you're using it in a in a in a totally different way. I mean, this this is a um, kind of a, a graphic style or a, a graphic vernacular that has a history of being used to um, to communicate elevation, sophistication, uh, to be minimal, and you you, some, you use it in a very loud, expressive way. And so, when did when did you realize that possibility? When did you realize that you could take this thing that was seen in one way and use it in a different way? 
maybe, maybe I first like to start, I mean, this is totally maybe a, a sort of side point, or I must say that when, when we think of, of modernism, we never see it really as a sort of singular thing. Uh, oh, and and uh, uh, not and uh, especially not as a sort of singular visual language. In a in that sense, it is we see it often as a whole spectrum of sometimes even opposing uh, movements from Dadaism, Futurism, and so in that sense, it's not that we necessarily see minimalism as a, as something that's typical for modernism. And it's, you know, because there's also stuff like Dadaism and Futurism that are actually quite bombastic or quite... Um, so, I, yeah, I've, I mean, I know that it's often seen as, okay, modernism is minimalism, is, you know, as some kind of very easy shorthand. And sometimes that shorthand can be quite useful, of course, when you're... But, but in, in general, I think our, our idea of modernism, uh, modernism is more layered than that and I, I so in that sense um, uh, and also we don't really see it as a style we we when we think of modernism we think for us it's very much linked to the social democratic uh, environment we grow up in so we also think it's like a political um, environment we grow up in and the social democratic thing had this modernism as a as a language to speak with, so that is also why we're using this language because we for us it's talking about this this place we grew up in, grew up in and it's now slowly changing into a capitalist society, but um, yeah so we sort of are nostalgic already for <laughs> for that not per se for the style but more for the weight that it carries like the importance and that might also be a difference between um, Europe and America I think the the late modernist uh, uh, visual uh, language or the, the late modernist uh, way, way of designing in the Netherlands it really stands for uh, um, uh, official bodies or uh, uh, things that have to do with with government or with um, um, organizations that, that that try with uh, communal organizations. Yeah, it's called public, uh, public, public organization. While in America, maybe it, it refers much more to the world of uh, advertisements or banks or um, uh, much more commercial uh, language. I think so. Uh, for us, it's more something that's ingrained in our system because uh, we we came across it in in the schools and the, the I don't know the swimming pools we went to, and not because it's something that's um, that was always on television or in magazine advertisements. Um, no, no, it's yeah. actually true. I think a lot of the critical reception. I think our work uh, when it when it I mean it. It has always been quite critically perceived, but I, I think in the States especially, I think it received quite a sort of lot of criticism, mostly because here that language is linked more to a corporate, uh, you know, to, to the feeling of some kind of corporateness or something. And while for us it, it, it carries more the weight of this sort of social democratic landscape of the Netherlands in the 70s, 
So there's a different way of perceiving that sort of late modernist uh, language. We never saw Helvetica as, the, as a sort of corporate or, or, or uh, commercial typeface. For us, it's more the language of public schools and, you know, that, that sort of Actually, the, the reason why we choose to, to work with this typeface was actually also because of, ec of economics, basically, because at the point when we graduated um, in 1997, uh, all of a sudden, there was more than one computer at our school where we uh, studied the Gerrit Rietveld Academy. And there was this, like, all of a sudden, like a thousand typefaces to choose from. And we could not really handle all this. I mean, of course, for like half, half, half an hour, we sort of um, tried them all and, and had fun. And, uh, <laughs> and they really enjoyed it. But it was, I mean, we actually noticed that we wanted to talk about different things. So that's actually when we came up with the idea just to stick to one thing and explore that as much as possible, to have to restrain ourselves, basically, uh, as an economic gesture. The fact that it was Helvetica was, it could have maybe been any other sans serif from that time. Yeah. To bring it back to the metaphor of a band, we, we decided to just play guitar and not also the ukulele. <laughs> Although I miss the cowbell. <laughs> Um, so this different in per perception of, of modernism, maybe uh, uh, where you're from and, and in America, I mean, is that evident when you work with American clients, say, uh, the Whitney Project? For sure. Yes, for sure. Yeah, but how, yeah. how would you describe it then? How would you well, I, I mean, I think the director of the Whitney was very well aware of the position of the museum. It, it's the Museum of... American art, and they were um, up, up till recently situated in a building by Breuer, which is uh, an, uh, an architect from Europe. And I think he also understood that this outsider view somehow. What, what is what's the outsider view of, of Breuer? Or, or the I, I can outsider hear you view thinking. of American art? Or? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> what? <laughs> There's something to be said for the idea, uh, indeed, of, okay, but it's more like a general point, the idea of the designer almost like an outsider looking at something, and indeed the fact that we are coming in a way, uh, you know, looking at the Whitney as, as outsiders, um, which is interesting because the Whitney actually um, came into existence as a sort of uh, answer to the MoMA, which was at that time f uh, more geared towards, you know, the, the modernist tradition uh, that ha that was happening at that time in, in places like Paris. And then there came this moment that that New York suddenly, uh, uh, yeah, right after the Second World War, sort of stole the idea of modern art. There's this famous book, How, how, uh, how New York Stole Modern Art. And, uh, this was more or less the, yeah, the moment that America became more um, uh, self-conscious of, of, of their own ability uh, of, of art. And so, so, so the Whitney started almost like some kind of American emissary. Yeah, this was a sort of uh, em, uh, emancip... I don't know how to pronounce that word either. Emancipation. Yeah, but then, but then the, but then the, yeah, that's the word, that's the adjective, yeah. <laughs> 
So uh, it started out as a sort of, you know, as a way to promote American art against indeed the MoMA who were uh, s still looking towards uh, what was happening in Paris. Uh, so in that sense, it's a very sort of, uh, um, yeah, American institute. But there are still all these sort of uh, undercurrents from Europe in the sense that indeed the, the building was built by Breuer. And uh, yeah, there were more of these undercurrents. And indeed, uh, uh, the fact that they chose us, um, uh, what it could have worked with a lot of other uh, studios and agencies all from the States, that sort of means that they were looking for that sort of outsider's view maybe on the, on the American Institute. So, Pen yeah, but- Pentagrams right down the street, right? It was only a, a few, Pentagram was only a few blocks down from the, from the, bill, from the office. Uh, where the office was located. But how can we then link it back to his actual question? I don't question? know what his question was. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, do you, why do you think they went with you? Do you think they were looking oh, for a, like okay. a fresh perspective? Well, oh. they were, they, they were uh, talking to a lot of different... Uh, they invited a dozen or so uh, graphic design studios from all over the world, basically. So, um, yeah, I don't... I don't think they were necessarily look. I think every commissioner or client is in a way looking for an outsider view in a in the same way when you go to the doctor or something you also so once yeah yeah you know you always it's there's always this, this desire to look at yourself through somebody else's eyes and I think that is really with especially with graphic identity projects this is always the case it's not necessarily that you're designing it for for the others, uh, how they look to the company. It's sometimes also for the company uh, uh, to sort of give them an, a new way to look at themselves, in a way. But that's that's more, I think, a, a, a general thing maybe about this idea of, of graphic identities. Yeah, I think you're more talking or want to know what would be then our specific outsider's viewpoint on something like the, the Whitney, right? So, oh, what, do you what want to know how we came to this point? Absolutely, what was the process like? Uh, yeah, actually, yeah. Well, it was some, um, no, we, were, we just, I think we just received an email uh, where um, uh, one of the people working in the graphic design studio of the Whitney, the in-house graphic design studio, invited us to come and, and, and explain our work of, or our way of working. So that was quite a spectacular email. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, please come over, show your work. So we thought, okay, well, that's, that's nice. And um, then when we got back, I think the talk went, well, okay, the talk, it was actually quite a nice talk. Okay, I'll get, <laughs> this is, oh, this everything time. comes back now. <laughs> what, what was nice was that uh, some, uh, some of our friends were also asked to show their work, so we knew it was not not only us who were going there to talk about it. Uh, and then Linda uh, already talked with, with all the people there, and she said, oh, we met up in a bar in New York, and she said, oh, this is nice. Um, I'm going to show you the picture. I made it especially for you <laughs> to show you in what room we had the, the conversation or the, the presentation. Uh, I know you like that, so you can prepare for this setting. So she sh she showed us the photo, and it was like the an enormous room with the windows on the world, and 
super impressive. And then, like, uh, the next day we had a talk at, at the same Whitney offices, and then we were directed into this really small room. So with like a really a room <laughs> without any windows. <laughs> without any windows. Completely filled with, I think, 100 chairs. <laughs> I mean, we had to really pick from that. And then, yeah, the talk went okay, but we immediately thought, well, okay, everything is clear. We're just here for, for what reason? Just to have some sort of, a, well, as a joke or something. <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, we, we had the idea that, that maybe, yeah, we were already sort of dismissed or I don't know. Who were the other firms that you know they approached? Well, we only learned that later, I think. Yeah, um, although they were quite transparent about mm -hmm. all the people they invited. So it is, I mean, uh, Marika already in her anecdote um, <laughs> it's funny that we drift into something completely anecdotal, which is cool, which is cool. But uh, uh, she, she, she already mentioned Linda, so that was uh, uh, Linda van Deursen. Point is, we wouldn't mind uh, mentioning the names, and the Whitney were quite open as well, mentioning the names. But I always wonder if maybe other companies are really yeah. feel like losers if they didn't get a certain job. Uh, yeah. So you know, so you. Feel That's also the reason why we never anticipated in, in pitches uh, up till this point, because that's where this story is heading to. That um, we're all friends here. <laughs> so um, when we left, we said, oh, "Okay, so how is this going to continue?" Said they said, "Well, now we're going to just choose from all these talks one one uh, group of people to work with." So we thought, "Okay, well, that's clear." So we went home, and then we were in a studio, and we got this phone call that. We were actually, uh, they could not make up, up their mind because it was so important. And um, they choose, chose, uh, the director chose from these 10 uh, uh, well, design agent groups, uh, 12 even, okay, well, uh, four to really invite to, to think about what it could be or something. And then she, the head of the design department, Rebecca, she really said, well, I know you don't and, and, uh, do pitches, but for us it's really important because the other groups are big American agencies and you're the only one left from Europe and, um, and a small studio. So please, uh, for us as a design team, it would really help us if we could sort of... Uh, so that was the reason. Um, and also... Uh, they also paid as well for the job, so we thought, no, maybe, no, well, because that's, that's, that's quite important. That's yeah. very important because we cannot work. Uh, I mean, we live from the things we do. It's very direct sometimes, sometimes a bit too direct. So, I mean, if we invest, we worked on this like for three months, this proposal. So we could not be doing this and not work on anything else and not get paid. So that was really important. So I said, okay, maybe we, maybe we have to do this and then if we're not being chosen, which we really hate because we really think it's horrible when people work on an idea and it will never be sort of developed or just all this energy not used is something we're completely against. But um, yeah, so... But yeah, then, 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 it, <laughs> then it shows us in it. Yeah, yeah exactly. it is, I mean, uh, uh, indeed, we already told Rebecca from the beginning, we don't do pitches, we don't do comp uh, competitions. She called us up and, we, and she said, okay, I hate to tell you this, guys, but 
it turns out to be now a competition, but please, uh, 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 you know, participate in it because you're the only one uh, uh, left out of the four that is small and that we like to work with. Um, so we decided to do it. There's a funny um, anecdote. It's the moment that they actually called us to say that we got the actual job. I, I, I think we, we uh, received an email and, and um, Rebecca told us, okay, we're gonna give you a call around this and this time. And we had no idea whether it was to tell us that we, uh, that we didn't get a job or whether we got a job. So we thought, okay, should we get it or not? Or, you know, we were quite, uh, we, yeah, we had no idea. And we already expected that, that it wouldn't be us for some reason because the other agencies were so convenient to choose for the Whitney because they were located in New York and, and we knew that they were, you know, like big names that were doing all the museums. So we thought they're just gonna go for these guys. They're just gonna give us a call telling us that it, it wouldn't be us. So we were waiting by the telephone and she called in and uh, she was sort of giving some kind of introduction like, oh yeah, we, were, we have really thought long about it. And in the end we decided to, and right on the moment whether she would say whether uh, we had the job or not, Marike touched the wrong button. <laughs> and suddenly the whole um, uh, line was gone. <laughs> so it, was, it was quite, a, and we thought, oh shit, what's happening now? And then later they called back, and they thought we were the ones that slammed down the telephone that we didn't want to hear it or something, or that we were so shocked that they, that they took it, because it turned out that they wanted to work with us, so. Yeah, that was quite a, a sort of... Uh... No, but it's obviously nice to have a job. <laughs> but also, you're thinking, but now we really have to do it. I mean, <laughs> so it's nicer to get the job than actually... I mean, we never had... We, we did not really have an, had an idea how it would... I mean, what we would encounter, how, it, how long it would take. We had to fly six times. I really hate to fly. They were horrible, like the flights back especially. Jet streams, crazy stuff. Turbulence. <laughs> Turbulence. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and then but, yeah. and all these, yeah, strange meetings. And then we had to go back to the hotel, finish stuff in the middle of the night because they wanted to see our answer to it the next day. But Some of those meetings were quite heavy indeed. <laughs> I mean, uh, there were some meetings with trustees and stuff. And these were really big corporate meetings with guys from banks and stuff like that. And we, we said to the marketing people of the, of the Whitney, why don't you just do it? You know, you can, you, you, you know the whole concept behind what we do and you can just present it to these guys. You have a suit on, you look nice, yeah, you're well articulated. You do it. And I said, no, 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 they want the weird foreign people <laughs> doing it. So we did this presentation, I think there were like at, a, at the Deutsche Bank, yeah, for yeah. That, that one is 40, 40 yeah, people, half of them were sleeping because they were really old and it was really hot in the room. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what we did was basically, well, we, we, we presented a line to use the line that also shapes itself into a W. And then and I remember looking at the screen halfway, and then it was still a flat line. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm not sure how long people will, will um, be, interested. Yeah, will be interested in this. But in the end, they said, oh, you nailed it. And then, why? <laughs> so I guess, I guess we did. <laughs>
Who do you design for? For the object that we make. <laughs> no, but it, I, I think... Because um, well, uh, some designers design for other designers. Some, some are completely client-focused. Um, if you if you sort of um, I mean we, we we always hated that idea to sort of ex externalize uh, the audience you know this idea of okay there's this sort of audience there and it, uh, as some kind of alien uh, entity and we first have to learn to know this audience and then we can sort of anticipate it. And we, we, we always think that in the end, we all have pretty much common. I mean, it's not so different what we all want. So why would you first sort of extract yourself out of, out of, uh, out of the collective in a way, and then try to look at it from the outside and then think, okay, so this is the audience and we have to uh, sort of react to that. We feel that if you, if you basically, um, uh, start with yourself as a as a starting point, the, and 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 try to do that in a sort of um, I don't know pure way or something. You you basically uh, speak a language that a lot of other people also speak. So in that sense, I I, I think that in the end we we design for ourselves, but through ourselves we design for others. Um, yeah. Well, so that's a good note to end it on. Guys, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you so Beyond This Point is created by Civilization, a design firm rooted in social change. The podcast is audio engineered by Dave West and produced by Eric Blood. Listen to more of our podcasts at beyondthispoint.design.